We're closing out our second full year of the pandemic in Northeast Ohio, something we'll be talking about on today's episode of Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Leila Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And we got a tight deadline today because we got to do something immediately after recording. I'm going straight to the questions. What's the outrageous story behind the resignation of Greg Price, the attorney examiner at the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio? Layla, this one blows my mind. I don't understand how this got this far yeah. before anybody caught onto it. It is. It's it's kind of stunning. John Coniglia reports that Price, who's a lawyer and administrative law judge who handles litigation for the PUCO, has stepped down from four investigations involving First Energy Corporation after he admitted that he provided advice on the legislation that became the, the scandal, the House Bill 6 scandal. He told the commission's chairwoman, Jennifer French, that he had decided that it's in the best interest of the commission for him to withdraw from presiding over these four proceedings. Now, he tells her, <laughs> um, P, the PUO spoke, PUCO spokesman Matt Schilling wouldn't let Coniglia interview Price. He also wouldn't comment on, on why Price failed to withdraw sooner and 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 if price would you know withdraw from any future cases involving house bill 6 or first energy price had worked as the the chief of the electricity and energy section of the legal department his his duties include presiding over issues involving companies in legal cases before the commission though the five appointed commissioners ultimately rule on cases in in his letter to french he said that he was overseeing four investigations into first energy companies ohio edison the cleveland electric illuminating company and toledo edison it did not indicate what those investigations involved, but last month, Cleveland.com reported that in September 2020, Price issued a key order in the First Energy case, allowing the company to perform its own investigation into whether it spent ratepayer rate money on lobbying efforts for House Bill 6. Lots of dots to connect in John Coniglia's well, think, but, story, but, but, but it's... Think about that. Think about that. Here's the guy who provided advice on HB6 in which First Energy has admitted paying millions and millions of dollars in bribes, and he's making decisions that give them easy way out. Oh, it's yeah. unbelievable. It is. It's, it's just a stunner. And actually, here's a lesson. Pat the wine. You can recuse yourself late into the process. It was done here. Maybe that's the lesson we can take from this. I wonder if you get into trouble... If you don't recuse early, if you have this kind of mammoth conflict of interest, I wonder if you get into trouble for all the stuff you did before yes. you recuse or if the recusal just blanks everything out. Right. Right. No, it's a great question. And and what what triggers it now? You know, why like we are so deep into this. <laughs> like <laughs> what yeah, is I... it about sudden like the sudden, you know, what what irked his con you know, his conscience all of a sudden? <laughs> Well, I just didn't think we could be surprised by any more revelations out of HB6, but this is a stunner. It's mm -hmm. how do you not recuse yourself when he's making the decision to allow them to do their own audit instead of having an outside audit? Bad decision when a company is admitted to paying bribes. How does it not strike you, you know... I actually helped write the bill. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the, he just reached that point of no return where there was, you know, he wasn't sure that he could bow out <laughs> at that point. <laughs> just, like a Ponzi scheme. He just yes. got in so deep that he, 
yeah, it's, uh, plow I, I th- forward. <laughs> we're going to have to dig deeper into what the cases are he's working on and profile this guy because this was mm-hmm. a colossally bad decision for him to stay on the case. And really, they have some explaining to do now that this is all out. They're not being transparent at all. No. What a shock. PUCO not being transparent. That's never happened before. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. As I said when we started, today closes out the second full year of the COVID crisis in Northeast Ohio. Tomorrow is the anniversary of our first case. We do end with some good news. First, how low are the numbers of new cases compared to spikes of Omicron just a couple of months ago? And second, how is Playhouse Square responding to the lull in cases? Laura, that'll mean something to you. You go to Playhouse Square pretty regularly. And I am going tomorrow to see Pretty Women. So we keep shrinking. Monday reported 431 new cases of COVID-19. I don't know the last time we've seen numbers that low. Maybe the, the first spring of 2020. Sunday was 360. And compare that to late December and early January when we were averaging more than 17,000 new COVID cases per day. It felt like everybody had COVID. And yesterday I actually went to the grocery store and didn't wear a mask, which is a bizarre feeling to feel like you don't have to protect yourself. And you don't have to protect yourself at Playhouse Square now anymore either. So my mom and I are going to see Pretty Woman and it's optional to wear a mask. The theater will also not be checking vaccination status, which that was one of the things they put in place when they reopened in the fall to keep everybody safe. They made sure everybody had a vaccine and everybody had a mask and they were, they the ushers in the red coats would go around with signs, you know, remember, wear your mask. I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, roll your eyes kind of thing. It was enforced. So I, I, sitting in a crowded theater still gives me the willies. I don't know that I would want to do that without a mask. Are you going maskless? I don't know. We'll see how it feels when I get in there. When I saw the last show, Jesus Christ Superstar, there was no one around us. Like it was really empty, and it was the night of that snowstorm, so that could oh, be why. Oh, I see. But so I would feel comfortable then. But you're right. Playhouse Square does tend to pack people in. You know, your knees are up in your chest, and that's the kind of thing that yeah, you can choose to wear a mask, so you'll feel more protected. And I think a lot of people will at this point. Yeah, I see. Uh, restaurants, I'm okay with sitting shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of people. I've still got the willies. Layla, I bet you would wear a mask. Yes, I mean we we went to <laughs> Layla's we like kids. I'm not going to a theater. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we actually did take our kids to see Wicked okay. right before they shut down in the middle of that production, and that was when Om- Omicron was was pe- was n- not quite peaking, but getting getting going. And I was terrified through the whole thing. I mean, everyone had masks. They checked vaccination status, but we had our kids with us. The kids, of course, were like munching on stuff. <laughs> you know, like it's like, so they had their masks down. I mean, I just, I don't know. It's still terrifying to me. I, I don't know that I could, I could sit in a crowded theater with no mask and people with unknown vaccination status around me. What about a restaurant? You willing to go back to those yet? Uh, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think it's so almost look. patio season, Layla. So, so look, it's two years. I mean, it's kind of unthinkable mm-hmm. at, when the beginning of this, where there were some people that said it's going to be 2022, 2023 before we come I out know, of it. But I Everybody just thought, no those. way. Yeah. And yeah. here we are. It's been two years later. It's been crazy. Julie Washington has a story that published yesterday and is in print today, just looking back at the three marches of 
of COVID and the first March when everything shut down and school was supposed to be closed for three weeks, remember? And then by March 24th, we were all under a stay-at-home order. Um, You know, obviously grocery stores and gas stations were open, but a lot of things closed. And Amy Acton, the health director at the time, obviously she was on on with Mike DeWine every afternoon. She predicted that at the peak, we would see 6,000 to 8,000 new infections a day. Would Those numbers seemed outlandish at the time, but obviously we dub, more than doubled that by the time we were actually through. And then last March, we began to see the hope that teachers had been vaccinated, elderly people were allowed to be vaccinated, and then... On St. Patrick's Day last year, the big Wolstein Center opened for mass vaccinations. I think, Chris, you were on the very first day, right? Yep, it was. The, the, what was interesting is with the vaccines and we went into summer, you know, we all thought Independence Day were clear. I think Joe Biden even said that. But then Delta and Omicron and we went right back into hiding. So now I, the sense you get from people is, yeah, we're coming out of it. Let's enjoy the few months before we have the next one. And I'm really hoping that we don't have the next one or if the next one is so, so mild. So, you know, I, I don't want to dwell on the negative. We've all lived through the two years of this. It's been hard. It's been hard in so many ways. But I asked a question today on my subtext account. What what is the habits that you got into during the pandemic that you're actually happy with and want to maintain? Are is there anything uh, in the group here that that people are glad that they started to do and will keep doing? I mean, working from home. <laughs> I think we're all all like how much. I mean, obviously we are going to be back in the office and I miss the camaraderie, but I think the not commuting, the not getting dressed up and wearing heels every day, being here when my kids get off the bus, that's never been able to do that before is really it's a gift in a weird way yeah I I mean I used to hate the getting dressed up and commuting driving in and and now I long for it I'm with Layla (laughs) I miss all of that I look at all my jewelry and accessories that I don't wear and my clothes and I miss going to 1801 Superior and seeing your faces every week I yeah Mm -hmm. I mean I I mean, I did a lot of crafty stuff during the the pandemic, and I've kind of kept that up. But otherwise, it was just, I was just very isolated and anxious. But the crafty stuff, you'd like to continue doing Absolutely. that? Absolutely. What about you, Layla? Is there anything you've done these past two years you want to keep doing, or oh, do you just God. want to flush the two years down the toilet and move back to normal? <laughs> yeah, I'm more in that camp, to be honest. I mean, I mean, I think I picked up hobbies like gardening. You got very into that sort of stuff. And but but I mean, generally, though, if I could if I could erase the last two years and, and I mean, I, I would do that in a second. I don't feel like I, I've there hasn't been a net gain <laughs> from this experience. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not one of those. I, I just it's been more more hardship than than it has been you know, joy. And uh, <laughs> well, I would say that I, I would say that everybody on this call has gotten more efficient. I mean, that this forced you to be more efficient in how you approached things because you're juggling both home. That's and true. Work. But I think no one can deny that that with that trade off of, you know, yeah, you're you're not you don't have to commute. You don't have to do But then it blur, it blurs all the boundaries. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And everyone would agree upon that. Like, you know, no matter what your circumstances are, whether you have kids or not, you have no longer, you don't have the bookends around your work day mm-hmm. that, that kept everything contained so that you're like, well, I'm leaving the office, I'm headed back to my, my family life or my home life. 
everything is blended together because you know you you throw a load of lawn, load of laundry in in the middle of your workday and then you're answering emails at, at 10 p.m. and it's just a mishmash of responsibilities and nothing's compartmentalized anymore and that can really wear on you yeah. I think and my you need some structure yeah and all my rituals disappeared I you know I'd just been back in Ohio for three years I was just getting my rituals down pat and my socialization it all just went out the window and rebuilding it is extremely difficult so with well, flexibility comes comes hardship I think too as we enter the third year of the pandemic tomorrow, let's be optimistic and think the third year will be a much better year than the previous two. Here, here. It's today in Ohio. How many Starbucks stores in greater Cleveland are now the targets of a unionization effort? Lisa, this has been a big story elsewhere, but suddenly Greater Cleveland is in the throes of this battle. Yeah, it's starting to grow. We have four Starbucks locations in the Cleveland area that are now asking to unionize. The latest one is the University Circle location on Euclid Avenue. They announced yesterday their plans to file with the National Labor Relations Board. And there was also a news release from Workers United about this. And this is part of the big, huge union, the Service Employees International Union that works both here in the USA and Canada. So this uh, University Circle location joins three others. There's one on West 6th Street in the Warehouse District, Cleveland Heights on Mayfield near Lee Road, and on West 117th and Clifton, which is just outside the Lakewood line. Now, the the baristas at the University Circle location say that Starbucks acted in bad faith towards organizing efforts at other stores. And the big issue here in all the unionization efforts is low pay and inconsistent hours among the baristas. Now, this is something that started in Buffalo. There, um, there was one in Buffalo, New York, and another in Mesa, Arizona, that tried to unionize. The union wants the union vote to be by store. Starbucks wants a district-wide Cleveland vote on unionization, um, which would be obviously much harder to achieve. And Starbucks has has really fought unionization all along. Yeah, it's a, it's fascinating how that this has picked up so much steam in Cleveland. What's also interesting is is that there aren't as many locations as there had been. There were a couple of downtown locations that have closed one was in the key tower and that closed a while back uh but but the ones that are there the, it seems like the, the employees are talking to each other and they're getting more and more organized about it when uh when will the vote when would a vote take place do we know we don't know that yet i mean they just submitted this to the nlrb so we'll see what happens but i you know like i said they are fighting against the corporation um who is not wanting to unionize they say that they offer everything to their employees that that a union would offer, but I think that's not true. Okay, well, we'll see how they go. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The IX Center's days as a convention and meeting space seemed like they were over when the company operating it folded up in the middle of the pandemic. But it's back with a new company having some big plans for it. Layla, what are they? Reporter Sean McDonald says that the IX Center is now being leased from the city of Cleveland by Industrial Realty Group. And the place still pretty much looks a lot like it did when it closed, but it's about to undergo millions of dollars in renovations. And this will include cutting the event space down to a more useful 
530,000 square feet and sectioning off about 720,000 square feet to make available for business leases. Industrial Realty Group said they expect to spend $50 million on this facelift for the IX Center. And depending on a new longer lease with the city, that investment could become a $600 million project over the next 10 to 15 years. They're going to lose the Ferris wheel. So I'm, I'm, I hear all the sobbing going on on that. And they're not they're not sure what they're going to do with the indoor amusement park, which uh, let's be honest about that. Come on. Well, <laughs> if we can get rid of the jingle, yeah, if we lose say. that jingle, I we X never have indoor. that earworm again. That's a good thing. That's right. <laughs> I know as soon as I read the words indoor amusement park, that song popped into my head. But they expect to draw huge crowds for their other events. You know, in the past, they booked 20 to 30 events a year and averaged a million visitors. And they plan to double that. They just wrapped the auto show and they're going to host the boat show later this month. So these renovations are probably going to start in April and they'll last until September not every space in the Ag Center is going to be built out. Um, IRG eventually wants to construct standalone buildings on the convention center's west side, but the company needs that longer lease with the city to make that financing possible for that. So, you know, they see a lot of potential for the IAC Center, and they say it's it's here to stay as a venue for conventions and, and some of the region's largest events. Um, you know, fun fact, I didn't know this until I read the story. It was recently a finalist for American Ninja Warrior, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the lack of <laughs> hotels near the building hurt its chances, apparently, which I find kind of hard to believe because it's right by the airport. Come on. Aren't there a ton of hotels within no. a fairly not, short drive? Not really. Not really. I mean, so, the, if you American go Ninja Warrior is not that big of an event. We're not talking about the Super Bowl. <laughs> anyway. So the, 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 everybody that's ever been out there, which is most people, have parked in that gigantic parking lot on the yeah. one side of the building, but that's going to change. They have to move the parking to the yeah. complete other side of the building and build more parking. And I didn't quite understand why. I guess that the side that you used to go in is now going to be the non-meeting space. Mm, and they yeah, something get like that. Yeah, I, I didn't quite grasp that either, but yeah. And I thought also it had to do with like which portions they're going to renovate first and stuff like that to make you know, one half available for the conventions or whatever, you know, I'm not but, exactly sure. Hey, I'm sure they'll right. still be charging you $10 to park yeah, there. Don't worry. That's such a ridiculous thing. You're in the middle of nowhere, but I know. you have and to pay for parking. I went to the home and garden show and that was the first time I've been in there since the boat show in 2020. And I was like, oh my God, it's like time never passed at all. Right. It's still got the purple <laughs> carpet and those weird stars hanging down in the weird thrones that you can sit on and i was like yeah this this does need an update (laughs) okay you're listening to today in ohio how is a guy with a startup business called ortho brain in richfield working to bring braces to the mouths of lots more people than the shortage of orthodontists currently allow laura you and i were talking about this yesterday i had no idea there was a shortage of orthodontists and you of course said that's because you don't have children who need straightened teeth (laughs) absolutely because my kids both go to the orthodontist and if you want to reschedule an appointment like you're talking months out so and i didn't realize how hard it was to be an orthodontist but it is so this company is called OrthoBrain. It it received $9 million in its latest funding round. Capital Care is a large investor in the dental care industry, and it's investing along with Jumpstart and the Jobs Ohio Growth Capital Fund. This company was founded in the Dayton area in 2016 to solve the problem of not enough orthodontists. Basically, dentists outnumber orthodontists 10 to 1, and about 65% of all counties in the United States don't have any orthodontists, which 
I had no idea. And that's partially due to this training. So many states only have a few places that you can do a residency in orthodontics. Only Ohio only has two. And while dentists get paid as residents, orthodontists have to pay tuition. It takes three years. So that's a huge investment. So this company allows dentists to start doing the orthodontics and they can sign up for the company. They can use software to send photos, x-rays, and 3D replicas to the orthodontists that work for OrthoBrain and they'll do the behind the scenes work and basically coach the dentist into the procedures on how to, what's the best uh, way to straighten the teeth, you know, what's the regimen and, and do it that way through the dentist office. So OrthoBrain, the name is a reference to the software that they're using then? It seems like a strange name for an orthodonture company. Well, I guess you got the ortho and then the brain is the, you know, I guess it's like these 35 employees work for the company. They're the hub, the brain for all the dentists, I guess. But they think they could assist 500, one orthodontist could educate and assist 500 dentists and treat 7,500 patients a year. They've served uh, 5,000 patients so far. And the goal for this year is to bring on 800 dentists and each of them deliver orthodontics about 10 patients a year. So that's a huge number. They already have people in like Australia that are using this. All right. So when my kids were young and they had to get braces twice, uh, it was really expensive stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. the amount of money that we paid to orthodontia is, was huge. So will the dentist be able to charge those kinds of prices or will this be discount orthodontia because the dentist is doing it? I would think that with the increasing of the quantity that the price that would probably decrease, but you're right. I mean, and it, this is not just braces. Obviously that's really common, but my kids have had expanders and, you know, I had a univator as a kid. And if you act early enough, you might never need braces, but I think it's so hard to get into an orthodontist that people wait longer than they should, and then they have to do more work than they would if they'd started earlier. So hopefully this will get dentists to be looking for what they could do to help kids a lot earlier and then save the really the difficult rigmarole, you know. All right. Sean keeps writing stories that, are, that I have no idea that they're going on. I love stories that surprise me. This was one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. After all the talk over the past decade about the opioid epidemic, we're seeing another drug making big inroads anew, methamphetamines. Lisa, why the recent surge? Well, this is a a drug industry that has evolved from, you know, cooks, you know, in the rural hollows, you know, cooking up meth in their garage or whatever. But now uh, this methamphetamine manufacture and distribution has almost totally been taken over by Mexican cartels. So it's a big criminal organization now. Um, Common Pleas Judge David Mattia, who works in the drug courts here in Cuyahoga County, said just a couple years ago, you know, methamphetamine crimes were pretty rare. And he's seen a resurgence just in the last two or three years. Usually, he said before, it was more typical in rural and downstate areas of Ohio, but we're starting to see it come into the big cities, into Cuyahoga County and more urban areas. Demographics of the people who use meth are also changing. Before, it was very largely white rural people. Now more blacks are using this and dying. It's becoming a drug of choice now. It's like number three behind cocaine and fentanyl is a drug of choice. A lot of people are mixing meth with other opioids because opioids are a downer, of course, and then the meth brings them up. So it, it counteracts the crash that they get from opioids. Here in uh, um, Cuyahoga County, 90 county residents have died from meth overdoses. That was last year. That was compared to only six in 2014. 
14. 18 of, of those deaths were black people. Uh, in Franklin County, there were 109 meth deaths in uh, last year. 19 of them were black. Overall in the state, we saw over 1,241 deaths from uh, methamphetamines, way up from 2014. So yeah, it's interesting. So now that now that the cartels have a hold of it, now that it's spreading again. So it's coming across the border, which one of the it's one of the central themes of a lot of the Republican candidates running for the U.S. Senate is to talk about how the drugs are coming across the border and poisoning Ohio. And John's story seems to back that up with some big numbers. Right. Although, you know, a lot of the fentanyl we get actually is through the mail or through the dark web. A lot of it comes from Asia. But in this case, it seems most of the meth is coming from south of the border. Okay. You are listening to Today in Ohio. We often talk about lead poisoning of children in Cleveland, but it's a statewide problem, particularly when it comes to water systems. What did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine announce Monday to deal with lead poisoning in some of the rural parts of the state, Layla? DeWine announced that more than uh, more than four million dollars in state funding will be used to find and replace lead water pipes in communities around Ohio. And of that, more than two point one million will be targeted to six cities and villages specifically Delphos in western Ohio, Norwood, Norwood and Lachlan in Hamilton County, Hubbard in Trumbull County, Sio in Harrison County and Sebring in Mahoning County. Another two million is going to help Ohio communities that can't afford on their own to identify and inventory lead pipes in their public water systems. About 1.4 million of that will be in the form of mini grants, up to $50,000 per public water system starting March 28th. And the remaining 600,000 will be given um, to the uh, Rural Community Assistance Program and the Ohio Rural Water Association to assist small public water systems in finding and, and and mapping lead pipes. In 2016, you know, this this all stems from Governor John Kasich. Uh, he, he signed a law requiring every public water system in the state to identify and map the locations of their lead pipes in the entire service area. And after DeWine took office in 2019, he pushed for the creation of the H2 Ohio program. And that would, you know, the, the aim is to reduce toxins in Lake Erie and replace lead pipes and, and other water quality issues. Uh, during the past couple years, H2 Ohio has provided funding to replace lead pipes at daycares in Cincinnati and Cleveland. So this is, is uh, you know, much needed turn, turn of attention toward those more rural communities and, and uh, those that can't afford to identify and inventory their own lead pipes in their systems. Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing that we still have lead in the water systems. And, mm. you know, I guess it's expensive to, to get taken care of, but it should seem to be a top priority because it's children's brains we're talking about being poisoned. Good for Mike DeWine to put some money toward it. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland International Film Festival has done its part to support the people in Ukraine. On Monday, it revealed its lineup for the festival, the first to be in Playhouse Square. What was missing from the roster, Laura? Russian films. So the festival said in a statement that it removed all the Russian films from its initial lineup due to the obviously the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And the Ukrainian Film Academy requested a global boycott of any cinema associated with the Russian state. The European Film Academy, Toronto International Film Festival, and Cannes also won't show Russian films. So that means no looking back and unclenching the fists. They were originally slated to be part of the festival, will not be shown. They said it was not about their content specifically, just 
where they're from. They said in a quote, while we embrace artistic freedom and have not based our decision on the content or storytellers of any particular film, we must recognize that freedom itself now hangs in the balance in Ukraine. And there is a Ukrainian film called Klondike included in this lineup of 300, more than 300 uh, films and shorts. So that movie will focus on Russian forces moving into the Ukraine when a man and his pregnant wife are near the border struggling to stay safe. So very timely. You wonder how the message gets back to the Russian filmmakers. Vladimir Putin has clamped down on just about every avenue of information to fool Russians into thinking that the invasion isn't an invasion. But mm-hmm. if you're a filmmaker who was counting on having your movie played and the message comes back, yeah, we're not doing that because of what your country is doing to Ukraine, you just wonder if that spreads when when they start talking to their friends and and if the well, Russians are hearing any any of the truth. I've thought about that for a lot of different things. Like the Russian skaters were, you know, one, two, and four at the Olympics, and they're not allowed to compete at this point. And so obviously they're probably celebrities in Russia. What? How is the news being taken there that their darlings are not allowed to compete on a world stage? And there was news this morning that hackers have figured out a way to get information to Russians by by hacking the systems it's just uh if you're a russian and you're seeing the state media say all is well and then you hear things like this you've got to question the leadership you keep wondering when the people of russia are gonna get rid of vladimir putin because i don't think they really believe in invading a neighbor country yeah can i just say that there's a lot of local films though that they're going to be in here there's um a bunch of films with connections to northeast ohio war on the diamond looks at cleveland's indian player player ray chapman he was the one killed in 1920 when a pitch hit him in the head there's one called full out inside ohio show choir like it's like a glee like adventure into four high school show choirs as they compete and the closing night film linoleum is set in northeast ohio it takes its place in the fictional fairview heights ohio which i thought was a great name for a cleveland suburb that doesn't actually exist actually it sounds like it does right Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio, and that wraps up a Tuesday discussion. Thank you, Lisa, Laura, and Layla. Thank you for everybody who listens to the podcast. We'll be back Wednesday with Seth Richardson to talk about some politics.